0: You're listening to the Film Fix podcast, where film buffs get their fix. With your host Jeff Marker and Jonathan Hickman. Jeff, this
1: is the Film Fix. I'm Jonathan Hickman, and see, I said Jeff already, so I've introduced you. But you are
2: who? I'm Jeff Marker. Oh. You are Jonathan Hickman. I am. I'm totally Jonathan <laughs> Hickman. Um, <laughs> that is looking... so Jonathan Hickman I of know. you. I know it's <laughs> it, you know it's
1: just
2: I I can't step
1: outside myself and become someone else. Yes. I'd never be a very good actor. Um, Welcome everyone
2: to the Slap Happy Show. Apparently, right. you
1: can just do whatever. <laughs> we're going to talk about a lot of movies this week. I've seen quite a few. We're getting to that point where they're going to start sending you and I, Jeff, a bunch of films, and Jeff will start reviewing movies again. In fact,
2: he'll start watching movies again. Well, have yeah. you forgotten
1: how to watch movies?
2: I, you know, I've been watching some really good TV series though. That doesn't count. Yes, it does these days. Just because... I, I, look, you Halt and Catch Fire and Atlanta are released... Atlanta, Atlanta *Atlanta* so. rocks. You know, look, I'm not going to apologize at all for not going to the theater recently. Those are both great well, shows. I haven't
1: seen, seen Halt and Catch Fire, but I have seen Atlanta, and Atlanta is quite cinematic. It is
2: one of the most unique TV shows I've seen in years. And, and it bears the name of the
1: town in which we uh, sometimes inhabit. We are quite proud of that. Yes, we are. So this week, we get just such a real groundbreaking action film called Jack Reacher. And it's <laughs> never, never go, go back. back. <laughs> <laughs> never <laughs> go <laughs> back. I mean, there's so much you can do with that, right? You could say, well, he shouldn't have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he should have followed his title.
1: I, I have to say that I am a softy for the second career of, um, of Tom Cruise. He's... I was a
2: softie for the first career of Tom Cruise, well, you know? Yeah. I mean, the only black mark on his entire career is some of the stuff that he did, did off screen. He's an incredibly consistent good actor, you know?
1: And, you know, everybody focuses on, of course, the Scientology stuff. They focus on the Oprah. Which he is unfortunate. Where jumps on the couch. Yes. Um, but I had a hard time forgiving him for how he attacked Brooke Shields um, because I thought that was really unfair. Everything else was kind of like victimless. But, uh, but his attack—and and, and people have forgotten that completely now. So here I have—I brought it up, Google it, and you'll have, <laughs> uh, you'll have an unfavorable view of Tom Cruise. But honest to gosh, everything he's been in in the last couple of years, I've really enjoyed. And this film, I enjoyed— Less than I enjoyed the other films that he's done in the last few years. It's not nearly as good as the first one, and the first one was a marginal sort of—I want to say—kind of a B movie uh, uh, action vehicle for him.
2: Yeah, and so I'm I'm familiar with many of the the Jack Reacher novels. Child, yeah, all written by Lee Child, who you know, and there's nothing. There's nothing groundbreaking about those books either it's just they're executed very well and the thing that people i don't know if anyone remembers when they cast tom cruise in this role people were really upset uh, not only because he is polarizing among a lot of people but if you know the books the character of jack reacher is this sort of uh, neanderthal who at a certain point found his moral compass and has a surprising uh, level of smarts but he is huge He's this huge guy oh. and there's and there's a sort of uh, irony to him physically and and uh, and sort of psychologically. What he really would like to do is just sort of be invisible, not attached to anything and just sort of come and go. but when you're what is it six four or six five and just built like a tank, you can't hide from anybody, right, right? <laughs> you know and so. He's almost, like, uh, he's almost like the Hitcher. You know, he just sort of rolls into one town or and another. There'll be a reference to the Hitcher later in the show when we talk about Desierto. Okay. But, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. But, and so the first one only did moderately, moderately well. I don't think anybody... $80 million uh, and just barely $80 million. Yes. I was quite I was quite surprised they made a second one, to be and, honest.
1: Well, it, what's interesting about this one is that the first words, first title credits you see is a Tom Cruise production not like a company or something. Tom Cruise is now his own corporation, <laughs> and he it's a Tom Cruise production. Doing this business is out. also directed by Edward Zwick, yeah. who I have a great deal of respect for. Of course, he did Legends of the Fall, but he worked with Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. Is that what it was called? What was it called? I think you're right there. Something yeah. like that. That's the Samurai film. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, I had high hopes that maybe this would be kind of transcendent, and it's not at all. I mean, it is really, really, really just straight, forward, actioner stuff. And I did see this movie last night with filmmaker um, Mike Malloy and his wife. And Mike Malloy is a big tough guy, expert, tough guy film expert. He did the movie Eurocrime. And he came out, the first thing I heard him say, well, was welcome to the new Ethan Hunt film. you know. (laughs) So it's like, you know, this Jack Reacher guy is so resourceful. So I'll I'll give you the setup. So Jack Reacher is having this kind of, It's kind of a phone relationship, uh, non-sexual, but a phone relationship with this this major that's sort of taken over his job. And she is played by Kobe Smulders, and wasn't she on How to Me- How to How I Met Your Mother or one of those shows? Right, she's
2: Maria Hill in the Marvel movies. I have to say though, this the Susan Turner character is a key character in the in the books. He's one of the few women that you know. Richard doesn't, as far as I can remember. Uh, and, and by the way, there are so many Jack Reacher books. I like well, thirty learned, on. Yeah, I've I'm like a third of, of them I have read. Uh, as far as I know, they've never had any kind of intimate relationship or anything like that. That's not. That doesn't happen in
1: this movie. It, I'm pretty sure it never it's does. Played, it's played as though there is certainly some sexual tension there smoldering underneath. Sure. And um, Jack Reacher, of course, never has a, a left the military, even though he wanders about with a toothbrush and a leather coat. Uh, <laughs> and doesn't really have anywhere. He's homeless. And, and, and My one, choice. In one scene... Even though this officer is, that, that sort of has arrested him is holding his ID, he looks at Reacher and he says, This guy's homeless. How in the heck did he deduce that, Sherlock Holmes? You know, he, had, he said, All you got is a toothbrush and an ID card and some money. You know, and I'm just like, geez, this is so. I mean, they're they're just going for it, okay. Well, what happens is is Co- uh, Co- Kobe, Kobe uh, um, Smolders' character, the Turner, is the name of her character. She um, has arrested supposedly on espionage. It involves some government contractor that maybe may or may not be shady. They he had set up a date with her, sort of quote unquote, to meet her. And when he gets to the military base, he discovers she's been taken into custody. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Jack Reacher has to spring into action and do his Jack Reacher thing. Sure. And he breaks her out of uh, a top uh, top security prison, kicking they go much on butt run. in the process. And uh, there's a lot of running in this movie. Well, it's a Tom Cruise movie. Tom Cruise has the best run ever. Good runner. He's a good runner, but this Kobe gal, she matches him stride for stride. You know. You know? And uh, this Kobe gal. Uh,
0: Kobe gal, <laughs> she will see something else.
1: Um, the truth is, it would be better if the movie starred her, and she was the. But you know what? Probably wouldn't sell, which is a sign of
2: our terrible, the state of our viewership. I don't know about. Uh, the, yeah. Anyway, we we can talk about that. So the thing that's great in, in the Reacher movie, in the Reacher books, I should say, um, one of the things that keeps you coming back. Uh, like any good mystery, you need to have really good secondary characters, really uh, compelling secondary characters, and and, why, and child is good at that. It needs to be a decent mystery.
1: Well, there's a there's a couple. There's the little girl that uh, is his suppo- is Jack Reacher's supposed illegitimate daughter, Ooh, nice. and that's in there, and that works. It's a little cutesy in places, and the end epilogue denouement is a little stretched out and makes me kind of start looking at the lines in. Tom Cruise's perfect face because he is in his fifties and he doesn't look it at all until that last scene, because I guess the scene was the slowest part of the movie and really quite boring and cheesy. And I looked at him and I said, Oh yes, maybe he is 50. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Putting him up against my own, uh, chiseled physique. So Jack Reacher, I mean, I give it a fixed rating begrudgingly. I'm sure that I'll be in the minority, but the audience I watched it with understood what they were getting into, and they chuckled along. There are some laughs. There's some interesting action. There is some ridiculous action. There is some unlimited uh, clips in the guns. It's all this stuff that's kind of throwback to even 80s actioners. It's a very physical film. The fight sequences are, are sometimes well choreographed so I'll give it I'll give it
2: a marginal fix rating okay I assume it it lacks from uh, not having Werner Herzog in the movie Werner
1: Herzog is not he does not have the scene also, I went with a diehard my brother-in-law is a diehard Reacher book reader, and he had read the Never Go Back installment, and he said that it differed dramatically, and it didn't really make sense. The whole opium espionage uh, part is truncated quite some, uh, some, and he didn't think that it made as much sense as the book did, did. and I told him, yeah, that's Hollywood. Okay. Yeah, they'll take a title yeah. and jack it up.
2: Well, you know, and to be—yeah, to—, yeah. be, uh, yeah, to yeah. To be fair, the only thing these, these Jack Reacher books are long too. Oh, you know, they no. they almost every one that I have read, I thought, you know, you really, as as much as I enjoy it, you could have lopped off, you know, this little bit of subtext and everything, and and so it, they could be more efficient.
1: Well, and you would hope that that is an improvement, right? But. According to my brother-in-law, it was not because it lacked the development in order to engage with the narrative. And this this movie is not, I don't think, that long. It's 118 minutes, so it's it's under two hours. the The thing is, adaptations in uh, in Hollywood of novels. Um, in recent years, the best adaptations have been where they take uh, YA material, young adult material that may or may not have been skillfully written, and they improve upon the ideas in those novels. And, and I have seen that. Other than that, taking—of course, Jack Reacher's no classic literature, but if they take classic literature and adapt it, they usually strike out. Right. So, So, shifting gears, okay. We go from an action film, cheesy B-grade action film, to a highbrow Kelly Reichert film. Did I get that right? Reichert?
2: As far as I know. So certain women certain is what we're talking about. women.
1: And this movie is opening in Atlanta this weekend. It may have opened. I know it did its festival run. Everybody loved it. But they loved it while they were drinking coffee and sort of rocking in their chair to stay awake. And I say that with all due respect to all of the Reichert movies I've seen. So I've seen Old Joy, which was the one that kind of broke it open for her. Then um, I saw Wendy and Lucy, which I found really good. I really enjoyed it, but it is a difficult film, to say the least. Then she did Meek's Cutoff, and Meek's Cutoff is so bleak and so very, 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 very difficult and methodical, and it's very dark. It's all you know. It's got
2: yeah, see, but you and I differed on that one. I really, really liked this movie.
1: You like? Uh, I liked like meek's, meeks, meeks um, cut
2: off, but I don't mind slow. Yeah. And I, you know, I always have to sort of it's say that to some people. Slow. Well, but yeah. here's the thing: it worked. I thought it worked for that narrative because here they are trekking, like so many people during what we call the pioneer days, uh, did, which just endless walking and you know you've got a a horse drawn wagon you ride in it sometimes you walk in it uh, sometimes there's no iPods there's no you know sound or anything like that and so she focuses on you know the rope sound as it goes back and forth. And she just uses silence, silence as good as, is, good as any filmmaker. She's
1: brilliant on and, that level. And and we're going to talk about loving in coming weeks, but loving has a, a great use of silence. And uh, I think that's Jeff Nichols also. And except Jeff Nichols' movies to me, are just more entertaining. I, I don't know what it is. There is it's not that Rickert, Reichert sets out to make entertaining films. I think she's trying to make thought-provoking, introspective, subtle yes. uh, narratives that say something about the human condition. Yes. I don't know that she's talking about politics, although she did Night Moves, which was the environmental, I call it environmental terrorist movie, which I didn't see. So I can't, I just, I just from reading about it and seeing the trailer, I need to see Night Moves. That's Jesse Eisenberg, Peter Sarsgaard, I believe is in that. Anyway, this movie, Certain Women, three stories, four women, Laura Dern is just lovely. (laughs) And her narrative is the one I like the most, and it opens with her. She's a lawyer in a small town in, I want to say Wyoming, basically she is helping uh, a fella out he is going through a bad time in his case because it's a work it's jared harris plays this guy and he has he has been injured on the job and he he took some money workers comp money and now he can't sue uh, his employer in a tort case because the workers comp money was inadequate to take care of him and he's losing everything and he's confused because of his mental you know injury and that story to me is very fascinating and interesting and it's so small and and so insightful and so real and yet very interesting and very tight. Laura Dern is having a relationship uh, this is how they sort of interact, these narratives, is having a relationship with Michelle Williams' husband. Mm. And we see that at the beginning. And then the second story is Michelle Williams has some kind of business. She's building a house. Her husband is James LaGrosse, and he is he works for her. And she is has a daughter, and they're thinking about this town, uh, thinking about building this house. They go and see... And I cannot say his name right. Rene Aber, Aberjanus, you, you know how to say it? Obéjanois. Obéjanois. That is the French
2: pronunciation. I have no idea whether he uses that pronunciation yeah, or not. Yeah,
1: he's he's great, and he's only seventy-six. It seems like he has been with us in yeah. in roles for as long as I have watched movies. Okay, yeah. he has a fantastic scene where they go out to the to his house, sort of in this uh, sort of country area and they're wanting to buy sandstone from him that is this sort of antique sandstone that's, I say antique because it had been used in another construction, and it's in his yard and he is he is he is either either somewhat confused or befuddled, and he keeps talking about things, and the conversation is very circular, and it's brilliant writing, but it's also brilliant acting. And so that scene alone is just a is just a keeper. Then the third story involves uh, Kristen Stewart, who plays a young lawyer who has taken a um, a a has taken on the obligation to teach a class and she has to drive a great distance, something I know a lot about. It's a lot of, a lot of reasons for you to connect to this movie by the way. Yes. In order for her to teach the class, she has to drive a good distance and she kind of has this, interesting relationship with one of her students but this person is not really her student this person has stumbled into the class out of curiosity and just kind of sits there and this it's a young girl and she is, she she works on a farm or family farm with horses and it's pretty sweet and yet reichert doesn't want it to be sweet and so the resolution of that Is unsatisfying but very real Also and very introspective And I appreciated it This movie is something that will resonate I think with men and women It resonated with me and I'm obviously Not a, not a woman but I, I think It might actually actually resonate even more With women. The, the underlying theme here Is empowerment of women Women treated a certain way be, just because They are women right. and I understand That and I totally respect that position And this does it in, in Says makes a comment on that in such a subtle way that I think the message is, is all the more strong yeah. uh, because of it. Reichert is one of like Jeff Nichols uh, who we'll hear from in just a moment I think that she is a voice of, of this filmmaking generation that is only going to get better uh, and I have my fingers crossed because this is another good example of her thing of yeah. her technique, her storytelling approach and so big fix rating for certain women Excellent. Yeah. So, Jeff, I had an opportunity to talk with filmmaker Jeff Nichols when he was here in Atlanta doing the tour for his movie Loving, which opens in November. Now, Loving is the story of the famous case uh, of the Lovings, Mildred and Richard Loving. They were an interracial couple. Mildred was African-American, and uh, Richard was a white uh, fella, and he uh, they fell in love, and they decided to get married. And they got married in, they were in Virginia, they got married outside the state. And, and it's important
2: to note the year, if you didn't. It 1958? 1958,
1: in, in, in but the story lasts over about a 10 or 11 year period or something like that. It is hard to believe, Jeff, that interracial marriage was illegal in this country until the late 60s. Uh, it was legal in some places and illegal in others. And I, I really... I responded to this movie and it's fair for me to go ahead and say that in a real unique way. I took my daughter who is of of mixed race and she she responded. She cried like a baby in the movie. And I was it was such a special opportunity for me. So maybe I'm a little biased toward the narrative, but I don't think anybody is going to find this movie Uh, anything but very, very, very good, and probably Oscar-worthy, I can imagine. So we got to talk to uh, Jeff Nichols, and you gave me a question to ask about about the South, and so let's listen to our conversation with Jeff Nichols. Okay, Jeff. Um, Making it personal, your films are marked by intimacy, both in narrative and with the camera. Can you talk about the intimate personal stories, and then secondly, talk about achieving intimacy with the visual scope.
0: Yeah, you know, when when I was approached with this, uh, to, to do this, I was approached with the documentary that Nancy Bersky made. And there was a tremendous amount of archival footage that came along with it. And, um, and I got to really look at the nature of Richard and Mildred through that archival footage. They're very quiet people, so it um, it made sense to make a film that reflected that. Now anybody that's married though understands that the difficult parts or the important parts of being married are the day-to-day parts. You know, It's not every time you just say I love you and there's music playing in the background. Uh, it's the commitment of staying with one another over a period of time, working to support one another in life and through kids these details I think are what make marriage beautiful and what make it hard and what make it uh, worth something and that's how I decided to show Richard and Mildred because that's how I believe they lived Um I wanted to show pretty much all the details of their lives that added up to um, the nature of their love for one another so that was kind of the, that was kind of the the thematic approach is you look at the documentary you see how beautiful they are and how in love they must have been even through just the Gravelette photographs that you can get access to and then say okay well I'm going to show these people in in day to day moments that represent that love Uh, and and from there you start to get the stylistic approach Um, which, luckily for me, fits into my wheelhouse as a filmmaker. I've made very, you know, quiet films in the past, and I'm not really heavy on dialogue and exposition to tell my stories. I'm more concerned and interested in character behavior, and a glance, uh, sure, you know, a a a a touch. Uh, well, these things are just as important as dialogue. I think uh, if you look at a script, you know, you've got scenes of action or lines of action and, and lines of dialogue. But the dialogue, because of the spacing, takes up a lot more of the page. I think people, for some reason, give that a lot more credence. Like, okay, well now's when the story starts. The rest is just some stuff I'm going to write really quickly to get to the dialogue. Well, that's absurd. Um, The way people behave in a moment with their posture and their countenance, that, uh, that tells us so much. And audiences are so savvy now because everybody watching a movie at this point has been raised on movies they've been raised on visual storytelling so they understand the rules they know them Um, so let's just skip ahead and and let's remove some of that dialogue that's feels like a crutch in so many instances and let's have people watch uh, watch the movement that's happening on screen and watch the behavior between two characters fortunately for this film that approach really made sense with these with these people that i was trying to represent
1: keeping it out of the courtroom, no cold walls. Uh, So much of the focus is on the character.
0: 100%. You know, you're watching the documentary and and, uh, they're talking about the victory in the Supreme Court, Bernie Cohen is, and Nancy, the woman making the documentary, leans over and says, well, how did you tell the Levens? She's like, oh, I think we called them on the phone. And you realize, well, they weren't there. They weren't uh, part of that. Well, what was that phone call like? And where were they? You know you start asking yourself these questions and it uh it leads you i think to the path that i took in the film which is to make a make a story from their point of view um they didn't go to the supreme court so we don't get to go to the supreme court that just makes sense to me
1: now visually you worked with adam uh, stone on all your films yeah. and they're all on film yes uh, you didn't shoot this digitally no um how do you achieve that intimacy visual scope uh You know, working with him, the consistency has to be good.
0: Yeah, I mean, Adam's the best cinematographer in the world from my standpoint. Um, And I think he and I communicate uh, almost, you know, effortlessly. I'm very strict about where we put the camera. I'm very strict about how we move the camera. Um, Adam shoulders the burden with our gaffer, Michael Roy, who we've been working with since Take Shelter on making sure the light if we're having to use artificial light that it is representative of, of natural light um, we're going for a natural effect in, in pretty much everything, even Midnight Special when he's shooting laser beams out of his eyes we wanted it to look natural um, and so you know, we we lean on each other a lot uh, he kind of needs me for the camera movement and, and design of the shots and I need him to make sure that um, all that is executed appropriately and the look of it all still feels tactile and natural and there's a natural aesthetic applied you know specifically about camera movement this is the first time I've ever had camera movement that's not specifically tied to physical character movement usually um, I I just loathe unmotivated camera movement uh, there's no reason for it to exist, in my
1: opinion. It becomes a crutch in and of itself. It's a
0: crutch, and it's, it's the filmmaker telling you something. It's not the story telling you something or the character telling you something. And uh, we did something very specific in this that we'd never done before. And To a lot of people, they either won't notice it or won't care. But as an example, uh, Mildred is standing in that field when he proposes to her. But before he proposes to her, he tells her he bought it for her, this land. Now, she doesn't move. But there's a slight camera move on her, and there's actually a music cue that comes out of it. And the thing is, even though she doesn't move, her world has changed. The, her perspective of the place around her has changed. So it makes sense that that camera movement is reflecting this inner change in in her mind and in her heart. And um, I was really worried about that. I was afraid that that it might come off cheesy or something, but I felt like we needed to go for it. Um, in this particular story because that that inner shift uh... there are a few times that it happens throughout the film um, i met, wanted to make sure people wouldn't miss it uh, and i and i felt like i could validate that camera movement because it no longer is unmotivated it's motivated by the shift that's happening behind her eyes um, another instance is when Bernie Cohen calls on the phone for the first time as soon as he mentions that the a c l will cover all all expenses and charges, which for them is monumental that 's been a massive hurdle uh, for them getting their court case worked on. You know we do this slight move uh around her face, and it 's because her whole world is shifting in that in that moment and um These are very subtle details uh and and subtle. There's a subtle execution uh, applied to them, but I think they have really important Well, It's a subtle film,
1: and it's very powerful. You hit the high notes with low tones, and uh, and it's just amazing. Last question, how conscious are you at this moment uh, of how you are portraying the South? Are you drawing from your personal experience uh, alone, or are you taking a more intellectual and researched part of how you approach uh, directing the actors and writing your scripts?
0: a big question and the answer is it's both um, I can go through this film and show you personal connections that I have to it a lot of that comes through Richard uh, Richard just reminded me of my grandfather, you know, he was a working class guy that would say maybe five words over the course of three hours and uh, and despite that I understood though that he cared for me, I understood the emotions that he had going around in his head but he just wasn't very good at enunciating them or showing them um but I also very much connected with Mildred in terms of this love of place you know uh, there's a point in the film where she makes the decision to move her family out of DC back into Virginia and live in hiding under threat of uh arrest or or much much worse and why partly to be close to her family for sure but also she had an idea of home she had a connection to nature that as a southerner i feel i feel very in tune with Uh, there's a reason why i write all my films to take place in the south and uh, and so in that sense these are very personal connections that i'm making to these people and these characters but at the same time you know i was born in 1978 I had to go back and and look at um, not only the state of things uh, in Virginia at the time but also anti-miscegenation laws as they were written why they were written how they were applied and then how they were defended by Virginia at the Supreme Court level and then how they were defeated by Bernie and Phil Hirschkop in their oral, oral arguments in the Supreme Court so there was a tremendous amount of education that I had to apply and research that I had to apply on this film that I don't have to apply on my other films. Thank you. So we're back. You know, it was a great question that you that you had me ask
1: him about um, his method of telling, talking about the South and commenting
2: about the South. Well, and his answer didn't surprise me uh, very much either, you know, because you can tell that he is personally connected to his material, and yet he is a very thoughtful guy. Um, I, I, I'm sure he did Thorough research to get ready, get ready to make this particular movie um, um, in particular. So, um, oh, and
1: he's referencing the documentary that's right. made about the Lovings, right? Which is something we'll have, have to talk
2: about when it comes to review time for this movie. Mm-hmm. This is yet another fictional movie that follows a documentary made about the same real life events and so we'll have to address you know uh, like like Man on Wire and then uh, whatever the Zemeckis thing was afterward yeah Yeah, the the, walk if they'll walk yeah um, you see how much
0: I'm I'm, intentionally
2: trying to forget it so either way, we'll have to see, so, so is this a, a necessary movie? There's, there's a questions that we're going to ask each other, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and we'll save that discussion for a future time. We'll also hear in uh, coming weeks from Ruth Nega and Joel Edgerton, who I also had an opportunity to question and uh, question question examined <laughs> him now tell me. slipped into lawyer mode there yeah but uh, they were uh, they were very gracious with their time well let's talk about the other movies that i have reviewed in the last uh, last week or so the irony i think irony the irony Irony. The irony the um the, the unusual situation is we have movies in back to back weeks that have sort of similar characters in many ways the accountant with Ben Affleck and Jack Reacher are both very similar characters. They're loners, they, they choose to be alone, they don't have anyone close to them, they, they are men of violence, but also men that are introspective and intelligent in The Accountant which I liked far better than the Jack Reacher film Ben Affleck plays uh, a, an accountant a man of numbers who uh, suffers from some I say suffers but may actually be blessed with some form of autism and the movie opens with um, the father his father and mother when Ben Affleck's character uh, they identify him as many names but Christopher or Christian Wolfe is one of the names they kind of stick with but he you're not really sure what his real name is in the movie he's very mysterious hmm. but you see flashbacks of this Christian wolf character as a child visiting some school for difficult children children with perhaps autism and other uh, issues and the mother is just racked she doesn't know what to do about this and the father is a military man and the doctor explains to him that you know there are very, there's very things that, DM, that, that disturbed the child, the flashing lights, uh, loud noises, that kind of thing. Crowds, probably. F- crowd. Crowds, yeah. The father says, you know, they say, well, why don't you leave him with us and, and we will help him and perhaps we can help him live a, a regular life. The father wants none of that. He's a military man and he says, well, if my child is disturbed by loud noises and flashing lights... My child will have nothing but loud noises and flashing lights. My child will be inundated with it. And on one respect, you see that's cruel and everything. On another respect, perhaps, that is a method of treatment. And it appears that maybe... That method of treatment has some positive effects, but obviously there are very many negative ones as well. Uh, so the mother uh, then leaves the family uh, because she's fed up, and she goes starts her own new family. And so Ben Affleck's Christian Wolf and his brother, who I don't know is really even given a name, I can't remember that uh, uh, that played by um, Bernal, John Bernthal, Bernthal from uh, Walking Dead. He and his brother, they're raised by the father, who is sort of a shadowy military operative, and they go all over the world, and uh, there's a scene where the boys are taught to, uh, to fight, and they are basically brutalized during this experience. And that is, in fact, how they are brought up, with this brutal kind of edge. And uh, it's really interesting. This movie is two-thirds fantastic, flat-out awesome. It's origin story of the comic book variety that really is as good as anything that I have seen. Uh, Watchmen-like origin, uh, which, of course, for my money, the, Manh- the Dr. Manhattan uh, origin story uh, in uh, Watchmen is, is about as good as you're going to get. This origin story is uh, very well told, very real. It feels really real. It doesn't feel like a comic book then what we have is a a third, a last third, closing third, that relies on uh, typical action tropes and trappings and lets the film down for me. So unfortunately, The Accountant started with a bang, but then just sort of became average. Mm -hmm. And that's That's unfortunate. unfortunate. Uh, Ben Affleck's very good. This is a character that stretches both his acting chops and his physical acting ability. And so I think that if this movie continues to make money and they decide to make another, I would like to see more numbers and less uh, guns and and blood and hand-to-hand combat because when he is using his brain uh, in in the movie, he he goes and he, he actually... Cooks the books, they say, but he doesn't really do that. He uncooks the books, figures out who's stealing money in criminal organizations. That's what he does. And when he's called upon to do that, he has to finish what he started because this is part of his neurosis. I say neurosis. This is part of his... His his mental, mental condition. condition, and he um, he has to finish what he started. John Lithgow's in the film has a neat little role, just sort of you know the one note John Lithgow, you know, and uh, <laughs> but you know Jean Smart's in it. I think she plays Lithgow's sister. It, it it it's a it's a good film, and I think it should be seen. I compared it to. Do you ever see Zero Effect? Did you ever see that? Bill no. Pullman plays uh, no, Detective Zero. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Zero. Uh, that, that reminded well, yes, I did. me of that. Yeah. Reminded me of Zero Effect. It um, also reminded me a little of Gross Point Blank. Uh, John Cusack's character could easily fall into this kind of neurotic character, that kind of thing. Also Matchstick Men, the Nicolas Cage uh, film, right. uh, that that was a Ridley Scott film of, of, of all things. And I really liked Matchstick, Matchstick Men, but again, the character was OCD in that. he had, uh, but, but the OCD actually made him a better criminal, made him a better con man. He was able to channel that. Well, that's what they're doing in The Accountant, and, and it works for the most part. Uh, a couple other films. Uh, we'll we'll end with Desierto, but before that, we'll talk about a movie called A Man Called Ove. Now, we have a Swedish uh, uh, film critic in Atlanta, and I kept saying, oh, I just saw a great movie. It's called A Man Called Ove. And she goes, for the last time, Ove. <laughs>
0: so, so I'm not going to make that mistake again.
1: Uh, Mercy, thank you very much. Mercy is the uh, is the film critic who, uh, who corrected me. This is Sweden's uh, submission to the Academy Award. It is like Big Fish. Uh, it's about a man called Ove, Ova, <laughs> Ova. And he, um, he, he, he may actually be, a, he has an antisocial vein to him. He, he doesn't like to be around people. He is obviously intelligent, but he doesn't know what to do with that intelligence. And he is the kind of person who is in the right place at the right time for everyone but himself. Hmm. And so throughout the movie, you find him, saving people's lives in his life through a series of flashbacks, but never getting credit for it. And if he, in one scene, he runs to a house that's burning, he realizes there's people in the house, and there's a lot of people on the outside of the house saying, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And without thinking of his own safety, he just runs in and saves a child and another person, hmm. right? And then he, he hands them off and then sees that his own house Is now on fire and he runs to his own house and his house burns to the ground and he loses everything and it's over and over again you know his father is killed under certain conditions his mother has passed away he's left all on his own he meets a girl on a train who changes his life and it is a sweet sweet love story but even her situation is one marked by tragedy Hmm. he also has a very big thing for sobs he believes that the greatest car in the world is a sob. And that story is humorous and yet also tinged with a bit of sadness. So I'm a very big, big fan of A Man Called Ove. It, it got me. Mercy Ova. is going to. Ova. Yeah. sorry. Ova. It got, it, it got me. It, 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 made, it choked me up. And I think that it will also do that to most people. Sounds of the a bit viewer. like a fable. It is. It totally is. And... Um, it it is it's it's almost magical, but it it isn't. It's real, and it, you can see these things really happening this way. It, some of them they do they're a little contrived and pushed, but it's not nearly like the contrivity and fantastical ma- ma- magical fantasticalness that marked Big Fish. But it, it does have the similar thing because you see a life in flashback. Yeah. Last film, Desierto. This movie is, is like The Hitcher, and you mentioned The Hitcher, but I would say the 1986 Hitcher. I never saw the remake to The Hitcher, and I never saw The Hitcher television series, but the original Hitcher had Rudger Hauer in it. Yeah. yeah, who? Rudger who? And uh, it had um, C. Thomas Howell, who was in a movie that uh, that I worked on, and I got to meet C.T. So I, when I watched Desierto, that is by um, Alfonso Caron's son, it's a really neat little film. Uh, it is. It is sort of a political. It's sort of like a geopolitical of our time because it takes place on the border between Mexico and uh, the United States. And most the whole movie takes place outside in the desert. You you have uh, you have Jeffrey Morgan playing a uh, an American with the rebel flag and a dog and guns, and he just decides that he's going to start killing these uh, undocumenteds that are coming over the border. And he just has a gun with a scope on it and shoots a bunch of them. And uh, of the group surviving is um, Gail- Garcia Bernal. Bernal, I can't get, yeah, he, he's great. And, and he is the hero of the story and there's a, a woman that is with him. She There's no romance there, but he's helping them. And so it's a cat and mouse and they, they run around the desert. And the star of this movie is the dogs. Because, the, the, I say dogs, but there's only one dog, but I heard in an interview with Caron that they had to get several different dogs because Jeffrey Dean Morgan, uh, when he would get in his thing, one of the dogs would attack Jeffrey Dean Morgan. <laughs> so they said, well, we had to get a different dog to do those scenes, but the dogs are running, snarling, biting, uh, chewing, and and just vicious as all get out. And it's really, really good use of dogs. And in the same interview, they said that at one point they were like, "Well, we can't use the dogs. Well, without the dogs, this movie wouldn't nearly have been as effective." So, Disierto is really entertaining. Um, it's it's somewhat riveting. We've seen this kind of thing before but um, very much like Duel or right. like uh, that's the Steven Spielberg television movie uh, back. with, um, uh, with uh, Dennis Weaver or like The Hitcher. So that's, I think, the compliment I could throw at it. And I think those are those are high praise. I, I give a fixed rating to Desierto. And if you didn't know, I gave a big fixed rating to a man called Ova. <laughs> so, so I think that's it, Jeff. You got anything else you want to talk about?
2: Uh, other than the great... TV I've been watching. Have you watched Westworld? I have not watched Westworld. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm sticking with Atlanta and halt and Catch Fire. I'm eagerly awaiting the return of the Americans. Yeah. Every, every, everything is good. I have to say, um, we're on the verge of uh, film critic Christmas. You know, film critic holidays because we do start getting the uh, end of the year screeners, and so you and I will have ample material to discuss in the coming weeks and knocks on our door can I come over and watch the movie you're watching right yeah. we are we are most likely not available for social <laughs> engagements right. from right. here on till the rest of the year yeah
1: oh and I tell you what November looks bang off but, th- but think of the oh.
2: films that we just dis- discussed today how different are those films than what we were talking about two months ago you know over the summer yeah. this is why you know I've never even hidden it I, I sort of hate summer you know uh, one or two of these um you know, blockbusters and spandex is just fine, but when it's week after week after week, it's just it was you know. not a good summer. Um, so I'm really know. glad to be back in this time of year where we get some higher quality material.
1: Yeah, and hopefully it will be high quality material. I'm looking forward to some of the documentaries. I mean, I've already seen a few good ones. Uh, Lo and behold uh, is definitely in the running as document one of the documentaries of the year. Um, but probably there'll be better better films. I understand that. Just November is going to bring in so many good films. So I'll be seeing those in the theater as well as trying to watch the ones they send us. So I see Hacksaw Ridge uh, this week, so I can't wait to see that. That's the Mel Gibson return. And I've heard Bloodfather is really good. And um, and tonight I am going to pay to see the new Michael Moore film because it comes out on iTunes. And supposedly was uh, completed like less than two weeks ago and he's already dumping it out on the world. This is the world we live in. You can just get something out there well, right after edit. I'm not sure Forget I should film
2: I should not sure I should mention this, but there there was a uh, there's an indie film filming in our area. I I shouldn't name it, but they just wrapped last Friday very very early morning. It's going to show on TV around Thanksgiving. Geez. It's an
1: it's, it's amazing time. Uh, they are working so quickly, and there's um, just such a there's almost there's going to be a glut of content eventually. And it, right now, there's a glut of television content. If you there ask is. me, and Netflix keeps ordering series. I see. I get I get the emails continuously. So we'll see. But uh, this has been the Film Fix. I'm Jonathan W Hickman, and you are Jeff Marker. And remember, you can always go to uh, dailyfilmfix.com or you can go to timesherald.com and go to their Weekender section. Or you can subscribe to this podcast by going to soundcloud.com or on iTunes. Remember, this is the Film Fix where film buffs get their fix.